You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Kelly O'Connor McNeese to talk about her new novel, The Myth of Surrender. Kelly O'Connell McNeese's award-winning novels transport readers to pivotal moments in history as seen through the eyes of the resilient, fascinating women who lived through them. Whether it's a moving and intimate glimpse of Eleanor Roosevelt's love affair with Lorena Hickok in Undiscovered Country, or the tough decisions of Clara, a mail-order bride broker in, in need of a good wife, or Louisa May Alcott's excruciating choice between love and her writing career in the lost summer of Louisa May Alcott. Readers are immersed in riveting stories often overlooked in American history. In addition to her five novels, Kelly's writing has appeared in The Millions, The Washington Post, The Toast, and In Rust Belt, Chicago, an anthology. She has also written for the Boxcar Children series. Born and raised in Michigan, she lives in Chicago with her family. Thank you so much for being here, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. Do you want to start us off by reading a little something? Sure. Um, So I'll just give a little tee up that um, The Myth of Surrender is a novel about, um, in some ways, about young women who find themselves pregnant and are sent away to a maternity home in rural Illinois. And I thought it would be interesting to read from this section where the two main characters um, have just met each other for the first time, and they are going into the cafeteria um, at the maternity home for dinner, and they're going to be sitting down with some of the other girls who you know, are, have come from all different places and are sort of being forced uh, into this social situation together. So this is Doreen and Margie. They each took a tray from the stack and joined the line of girls moving past the kitchen window. The scent of onions and ketchup made Margie's mouth water, despite the fact that she had been disappointed by this same meatloaf last week. This kind of hunger was new to her. As the youngest of five children, she was used to getting the dregs at the supper table. These last few weeks, her focus on food had been an intense, galvanizing thing that woke her out of a sound sleep at night. There was a kind of violence lurking behind the urge. If there were If there were only one hamburger left in the world and she saw another girl reaching for it first, Margie thought she might casually throttle her to death. Donna pursed her lips and turned her head to the side when the nun working in the kitchen, smiling in the shadow of her hairnet, slopped the slice of meatloaf onto a plate and handed it to her through the kitchen window. Oh my God, she said loudly enough that Margie's eyes went wide. I can't eat this. Didn't you say you were starving, Margie asked, taking her own plate and an extra roll from the basket as they moved down the line. Yes, but this smells like dog food. They carried their trays to a large round table, joining three other girls and dipping bread into the meatloaf's watery sauce. Though Margie would have introduced Donna to the others to impress Donna with how well she knew her way around, Margie had mostly been keeping to herself since she had arrived a few weeks ago and did not actually know the other girls' names. And I should pause here to say that Doreen's code name is Donna and Margie's code name is Minnie because these girls weren't allowed to use their real names. Again, Donna surprised her, handling so easily a situation 
that Margie would have added. Hiya, girls, she said. I'll start. Donna from Chicago, and you know me. Margie gave him a shy grin, fairly certain they didn't know. I'm Yvonne, said the girl to her right, who wore dark-rimmed glasses and had enormous front teeth. From Peoria, I love your hair, she said to Donna. I think you look just like Mrs. Kennedy. Next was a tall, frail-looking She was thin all over. Her midsection was narrow, but it jutted out so far she could barely reach the table. Her plate, which contained just a roll with butter, sat untouched. Margie had the thought that the baby was draining the life out of her face. So Laurel from Lake Forest. I'm from Ellsville, the next one, plump and said. And when everybody stared at her blank farm town just down the way. No, Laurel whispered, your name. Margie didn't know her, the youngest one. Oh, she giggled and wiped her mouth with her napkin, Ingrid. Laurel waved her graceful hand toward the empty chair at Ingrid's side. And that, she said, is where Patsy would be sitting, but she went over the day before yesterday. Donna looked at Margie, went over, over to the hospital, Margie said, to have her baby. Donna whistled. So that's it then. You won't see her again? Sometimes they don't come back, Laurel said, and we never really know why. But maybe it is just hard to see again. No. Or maybe she died, Eva chimed in and plastered. I just mean, how do we even know? No one tells us anything. Well, well said. Jake had an irritation. Patsy didn't die. She's coming back in a couple days, actually, to get her things. Her father is driving up from herself by asking. She pictured Patsy in a hospital beneath a white blanket, holding her arms that looked like a football. The girl said in a whisper, and the air around the table grew heavy the way it does just before a storm. All at once, the girls exhaled quietly, and Laurel kept her eyes on Patsy's chair. Margie wondered about how all the girls had come to be here, even if she never get the answer. Unlike Laurel, who talked still, the wealthy boyfriend who claimed he would marry her just as soon as he finished up at Princeton, and Yvonne, whose puppy love had matured rather suddenly in the back of a station wagon, Patsy had never said how she came to find herself in the family way, and Margie couldn't help but speculate. Maybe Patsy's story was about love. Maybe, like Margie's, it was not. And now, of course, there was Donna to wonder about. Despite being the new girl, Donna wasn't at all shy about piping up. But isn't it good news? She made it through. Now she can get back to her life. Ingrid stuck her in the air. That's right, she said. It's like Sister Simon says. God chose us to give these babies to a couple of children. It's an important job. She scooped a bite of meatloaf into her mouth. <clears throat> or we just got knocked up by accident and none of us had money to of it like the rich girls on the North Shore do, Donna said. No offense, Laurel. Laurel looked at her in shock. Can't believe you would even say that. Donna shrugged. Why not? It's the truth. Ingrid's eyes were wide. A gold hand went to the little gold cross she wore at her throat as she chewed and swallowed. The room had filled up with the rest of the girls and the dame laughed. Sister Simon did not like chatter at meals. Be careful talking about back alley doctors and all that, Yvonne said, hacking the that was forever, forever in her mouth, even mysteriously as she ate. 
Ingrid's a tattletale. Anna. I am not, Ingrid said. Then how did Sister Simon find girls letters to Bill? Yvonne spat back. It's not my fault if someone chooses to break the rules, Ingrid said. Chair back from the table. Well, it's not, Ingrid said. She's not supposed to have contact. It's for her own good. Laurel snatched up her plate. Nice to meet you, Donna. I've got dish duty. Thank you so much for uh, giving us a little <laughs> peek into this world. And I am so excited and uh, like sad a little bit at the same time. Like it's a, I'm so excited to talk to you about this story and so happy that this story exists. Um, but it is a tough, it's a tough story and you've, uh, you've shown a light on it here. And so I wanted to kind of start there. It's a story that some people have heard. Maybe people have come up to you and been like, I had no idea that this was a thing or that this was ever happening. Um, and then there's a lot of people that have lived through this experience, like these girls that you've written about here. So what made you want to tell this story um, first off? And why was now the time to tell it? <clears throat> That's such a good question. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. You know, I've had I've had people say that they had no idea that this was on. And then I've had probably more people say this happened to my grandmother than to someone I know. <clears throat> I have someone in my family who went through this experience. So I was aware um, of these homes. I was aware of this phenomenon. I didn't know how prevalent it was um, until I started reading more about it and learning more about the experience of women who went through it. Um, 1.5 million women is probably a conservative estimate of the number of people who you know, were in these homes and surrendered babies in these homes between around 1945 to around 1973. Um, so in terms of why I wanted to write it, you know, I was always interested in this story because of that personal connection. And somewhere along the way, I came across this collection of oral histories um, that were collected by a researcher in Rhode Island who she herself was an adopted child and mm -hmm. always wondered about, you know, her birth mother's experience. And so she set out to interview all these women. Things be hard to find other women gone through it, but when she Put out and her name is Ann Fessler, by the way. Um, and she put out the call, you know, one who might be interested and in, was just flooded with, you know, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of emails and calls from women who wanted to be interviewed. And so just reading that, you know, reading those stories really sparked my imagination because I saw how, you know, how varied the experiences were on one level depending on where people were from and what age, you know, the difference between 15 versus 19 um, mm -hmm. going through this. Also, you know, the homes varied a lot from place to place. It was a very decentralized kind of management. So you might have one that was quite progressive and then you might have one that was very conservative and, and you know, the girls barely went outside. So I thought that was interesting, but then at the same time, even with all that variety, there was there were some things that just came up again and again in everybody's story um sort of the same tactics that the homes used to manipulate the girls sort of across the board uh were the same and the kind of trauma that they had 
you know, in the immediate aftermath and then even decades and decades later, the way they described how they felt about what had happened, how it affected them throughout the rest of their lives was a thread that I thought was very interesting because, you know, one of the things about the experience of the home was that you weren't supposed to talk about it and Mm -hmm. you weren't supposed to share, you know, with the other girls or with anyone back at home about what you had been through. So every woman who went through it sort of felt like it was the only one. Um, And I just thought that there was a lot of power in, you know, bringing to life the story that there was a very common experience um, that most of these women or many of these women had there. And then why now? I think there's just a lot that this era has to teach us about um, how tenuous some of these rights and freedoms that we we may take for granted, hopefully we don't take for granted, but uh, they're pretty new you know, the fact that women have access to birth control. And of course we know not all women do, but um, that more women have access to birth control now than they did in the time of this novel. And that more women have access to abortion now than they did in the time of this novel. Um, That we haven't had those for very long. And obviously we, it's a fragile thing that we, that we do have those. And so I just think it's important to remember what, what life was like before uh, those rights were available and what the risks are, I guess, to to taking them for granted and possibly losing them. And then you answered my next question a, a little bit, and I also know a little bit of the answer to it, but I wanted to see if you could explain it uh, a little bit and uh, give us a little insight into how you uh, kind of decided on the details for both of Doreen and Margie's um, like the circumstances that led them to the home. Uh, because like you said, these stories were all different in certain ways because they happened to different people, but there were so many common threads. Um, so one of the, and I definitely don't want to, I want everyone to go out and read this book. So we're not <laughs> gonna do too much spoiling, but um, I think it's okay to say that one of the girls, um, the reason that she ended up in the home, it was her choice like the circumstances of her pregnancy were her choice and the other, it was not her choice. She was assaulted. And so just some of the ideas or the, how you kind of came to the decision of what these two specific versions of this story would be. Mm -hmm. Well, I was really interested and, and I probably wasn't, you know, kind of this, but I can see now looking back on it um, that I think I was very interested in questions around consent generally mm-hmm. um, in all fast, you know, air consent around sex because the way that we think and talk about that now is really different than it was in the 60s. And, and especially and, when you're, you know, when you're 15 70s. in the 60s too. Correct. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And right. So another thing is like the, nature of relationships between adult men and very young women and the way that was thought about at the time um, is very different to now. And then the issue of consent in the sense of consenting to give up your baby for adoption and how, you know, what does it mean for a woman who just gave birth to truly give consent to that? Um, what circumstances would need to be in place? Because a lot of times, in, in these homes, that was not the case. And um, the homes took advantage of that. 
in, in pressuring and coercing women. So I think I wanted to represent sort of a few different aspects of that question and sort of, and then I also had a, a need to have two characters who are very different before to mm -hmm. be roommates because that's just interesting for fiction um, to create yeah. conflict. And, um, and so I, I sort of thought of Margie and Doreen as two extremes on the spectrum because Doreen has a lot of agency. She has a plan for her future. She does choose to go to the home because she thinks it's gonna be the solution to her problem. Then it gets more complicated and she changes what she wants to do. Margie is, is just sort of like a leaf in the wind. She has almost no control over what's happened to her from what's happened to her body, but also how this you know question of the pregnancy is gonna be addressed, whether she's gonna have any say in what's gonna happen to the baby. And I just wanted to explore, I think, um, what happens when people believe they have, you know, agency and how that just, just the belief that they do have it mm -hmm. impacts the decisions that they make. And then, you know, what happens when someone doesn't have agency a long time and then wakes up and realizes, I want to, you know, try to take some control back and reclaim some things that were taken from me. And then you just mentioned the, like the, I, the idea or the belief of control. And I had wanted to talk about sister Joan for, for just a second, like believing. So the, the idea of believing that your intentions are, are good and honorable, yeah. um, and, and believing, and that falls into the religious aspect of this too. Um, mm -hmm. so sis, for our listeners, sister Joan was someone who worked at the home and was closely involved with Doreen and Margie, and she didn't know that these babies were being taken from these mothers um, under suspicious circumstances, mm -hmm. we could say. Um, and when the girls bring that to her attention, she says, no, there's no way. Like that would not mm -hmm. be happening here. Um, and so people being kept in the dark about these kinds of things, and then not necessarily wanting to believe a 15 year old girl who's telling them something that they, they think they know uh, more about. Um, so you have those sort of ideas of understanding and uh, belief, not just on a religious level, but even just between people, like thinking that you know more about people and those intentions, no matter how good they are. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, one of the things I thought about a lot was, you know, who's responsible for what took place there. And I think we see that a lot in institutions where there's abuse of any kind, you know, mm -hmm. in a school or in, in a, a troop or a church, any institution where the power dynamic is really out of balance. And you have a few people who hold a lot of power and and are able to isolate, you know, if you think of it in terms of a cult, the way a cult leader operates, right, is that they get their followers to be cut off from, you know, mm -hmm. other sources of information that might contradict the things that they're being taught. And that's can exert mind control or have cult-like in a, in a way, because they shared a lot of those same traits. Um, that's partly how they were able to convince these girls to go along with 
giving up the babies because in cases the girls really fought to keep theirs, but in many cases they just sort of acquiesced. And it wasn't until later on when they were out, you know, home out of that context, sort of woke up that dream. So just recovered from the birth and stuff like that and realized what what have I done and that they regretted, you know, what had happened. Um, that's sort of a long way of answering your question, but thinking about like who who is responsible and part of what what happened, I think, was that a lot of people, as you said, believed that they were doing something good. Um, they were, you know, the the sort of foot soldiers, the the nuns and nurses who were not in charge, but who were carrying out the orders day and running the ship, making sure everyone followed the rules, that all of this was, you know, for the good of these poor babies that nobody wanted. Mm -hmm. That really wasn't what they, you know, they weren't unwanted necessarily, but that was sort of the narrative had to be created in order to justify, you know, for these adoptive parents to, to take these babies without knowing their origins. Um, and I think there were probably a lot, as there are in any institutional abuse situation, like a lot of good people who got caught up, you know, in carrying out these things. And I think maybe years later reflected back as the culture changed and as women, you know, agency and mission changed, that would be part of something that actually was really bad um, and that created a lot of harm for people. I, I also needed just for the logistics of the story, I needed to have, you know, one sort of friendly um, ally mm -hmm. in in the home um, because they were gonna need some that that, you know, someone had to be sympathetic to to Doreen yeah. to help her <laughs> with her situation <laughs> without giving too much away. Without giving too much away. And um, <laughs> and then I also wanted to uh, to talk to you a little bit about like mother-daughter relationships because both of these girls have we could say fraught relationships with their mothers um especially once their mothers find out that they are pregnant um and just sort of the uh the circular nature of that tension in a mother-daughter relationship but especially once the idea of motherhood is introduced to a daughter um and it's one of those things because I don't have any children but they like you have the tense relationship and you don't consider any of the ideas of motherhood or you can't fully understand them until you become a mother and these girls are becoming mothers under very strenuous circumstances as well um so just kind of the the circular nature of those ideas in this story in particular yeah that's so interesting. i think it's another thing that i like necessarily intentionally set out to explore, but it just sort of came, you know, out of this. One of the things I noticed writing some of these scenes just in early drafts was that like both characters were all, every situation that they're in, you know, their mothers weren't with them, but they were always thinking about what their mother would say about mm -hmm. what they were doing. Um, like, <laughs> they were have a scene where Margie goes on a date in restaurant first thing she thinks is what her mother Verna will think about the fact that this restaurant is not is poorly lit and that they probably are doing that to hide <laughs> you know that the food is disgusting whereas Margie feels like it's romantic you know that it's a low low lit restaurant um but it's in there now if you do that with your own mother but I think I do that with mine where in my head I'm always like ping-ponging between you know what's my impression of 
situation or this person, what would my mom say about this situation in prison? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a positive relationship with your mother, then maybe that's a good dynamic. But I think if there's a lot of tension or, you know, you're too enmeshed, you don't have your own identity, which I think was part of, um, it's like, you know, the mom's voice is so uh, overwhelming. It fills every gap and you can't really like exist separately from it and have any space to be who you are. And then you add something that's so, you know, catastrophic um, from the mother's point of view as, as a plan and with all the social consequences that that entails and all the, the genuine fear and, you know, worry that a mother would have about a daughter going through that experience, um, it just kind of turns up the volume, you know, on everything. Um, it becomes the, the vehicle for, you know, this is, this is why everything is wrong with you. This, all the things that I've spent my life trying to prevent, you know, this really, I mean, mm-hmm. when you think about in a patriarchal culture, like the textbook definition of patriarchy is controlling production, right? And so the worst thing that could happen is to, to get pregnant out of wedlock in a patriarchy mm-hmm. because your social status, your class status, your reputation, your ability to marry, you know, all those things would be under threat. Now we have lots of good ways of thinking about that now that, that pull apart some of those assumptions at the time that's like a ubiquitous um, thing yeah. that nobody questioned. And so I think for mother um, and daughters, there's just to fight over <laughs> <laughs> And then we, we already talked about how important um, the idea of control and agency is for uh, specifically in this story and it's so central. Um, But I think that there's this really interesting thing that is woven throughout this story, which is because choice is so central to the experiences that both these girls are having, it sort of becomes um, something that is very easily seen in the relationships between the other characters as well. Um, like we make choices every day. We make millions of choices all the time, every day. Um, and some are bigger than others. And we, and some are much smaller that we don't consider at, in the moment. Um, but when choice has become like such a central part of this story, it became very evident, like all of the little choices that people were making, um, in so many of these situations. And so again, We don't want to spoil too much, but um, there's like a lot of um, sort of moral ambiguity and ideas about intention and how um, no matter how well-intentioned you might be, is your choice still um, a moral or acceptable one? So there's choices about hiding these pregnancies from the fathers of the children Um, when that's found out for other people, there's the choices of hiding these children from their mothers, um, both in the beginning and in the end. Um, and so I wanted to just, uh, I wanted to hear some of your thoughts about choice and making sure that like those, uh, the theme of choice specifically in this story and how it was important to create opportunities for choosing amongst the other characters as well outside of this central idea. That's such an insightful observation. 
um, I think that's really, it's really true as you say that it, it all becomes heightened and we pay more attention to the fact, you know, we, because we see so many times when the characters don't have a choice over what's happening to them, the times when they do stand out. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, one thing that's interesting is we tell ourselves that it wasn't a choice when, when um, we tell ourselves that was the moment. Sometimes we lie to ourselves about the fact we may, you know, maybe we took the easy way out, want to do the, the thing that was right, but was going to be very hard. Um, I think that we tell the stories that we need, you know, to survive. Um, sometimes we can't you know, the, the repercussions, even if we had good intentions, there sometimes that, you know, someone and the longer we let it go on, it, it continues to hurt them. And so the act of making it right many years later is such a bigger task um, than if we had taken action sooner, which can be a life lesson. I think people, especially when you're young, mm -hmm. um, sometimes you don't really believe that the that just little old you could make one decision that would have a big impact on somebody else's life and some that you sort of come in understanding with more maturity. Um, I think that, you know, times the characters um, have to decide between their idea of what is selfish and of what is, um, you know, selfless or for others. And sometimes again, those definitions are a little bit fluid depending on the situation. Um, I think that everybody's life is an interesting mix of, you know, circumstance and, and agency. And we want to have agency, but having a big responsibility too, uh, because when you have it, then that means, you know, that you really do need to think about um, the consequences and the impact on other people of the choices that you make. Of course, there's a whole other generation of kids, too, you know, that the baby homes were sort of like an abstract concept for a lot of the, the women who surrendered them because they never saw them. They never held them. It was, an, you know, these these babies were an idea in their mind that they mm -hmm. carried with them and that was a source of pain and sorrow for them. But maybe they didn't really think about them like a person that was growing and that was going to become an adult and that was going to have their own, you know, stories, own version of events and how they felt about what it meant to, to be put up for adoption. And um, so I think that is a shock moment too, when you come face to face with, with the person and not the idea. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, I think that's a really interesting idea to think about, about choice. Yeah. And then choices, um, specifically and, um, and also, so we've talked about choices and secrets, um, and the idea that we talked about in the beginning, how a lot of these women, um, didn't talk about this and they, and they kept it a secret and, you have a little bit of that at the end where you almost give, um, you give one of the girls a, a happy ending of sorts and in a way where she tells someone this secret and, and it means almost nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't carry, it doesn't carry the weight that 
she allotted it um, all those years. Um, and I, I wanted to just see if you could tell us a little bit about the choice to have her talk. And since we talked about it at the beginning, like if that was something you decided to do based on your research and you know, finding that so many of these women thought they were the only one. Um, and so to yeah. give her the opportunity to sort of unburden herself from uh, this thing that she had been through um, and to hopefully let that be um, an opportunity for maybe someone who's reading this who went through that experience to be able to tell someone else and not feel as alone in that. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing if someone had that experience. I, <laughs> I can only hope that there's something about many people when never told. And I think one thing I learned from the oral histories was that people who never, who truly kept it inside her death, and even when they participated in these interviews, they still used a fake name or they you know, didn't mm -hmm. say where they were from because they were still, even though they were 75 years old, they were sprayed that someone would find out somehow. Um, that's the power of the shame and the secrecy. Um, they were the ones who seemed to have the most, you know, terrible impact on their life from it. Um, they had substance abuse problems. They had physical health problems. You know, they were so were convinced this had caused migraines, cancer, autoimmune, you know, that, that I mean, it's kind of cliche, but it's true. Only as thick as your secrets, the, the mm -hmm. AA thing. I mean, I think that that, I, that was really true. And the oral histories I read of women who were able to finally talk about it and maybe get some therapy or to share it with people who cared about them, it was huge burden lifted to be accepted and not shunned and not all the things that they're afraid were going to happen, but instead to be embraced and have people be compassionate toward them about what they had gone through. That was a really thing experience a lot of them. So I knew that for, for the character that you're talking about, um, it had to end with her finally, you know, undermining herself of this, um, information because she was just so trapped by not only you know what what she believed it said about her but also what she thought other people would think you know if they knew and that it would mean she wouldn't be worthy of love and that she would own and um i needed her to get out of that you know prison in her own mind and trust trust one person you know um take the chance to trust that that she would be accepted and that there could be life after this you know that she could not that you would ever get closure but that she could have some new way of making meaning out of what happened to her and be able to move forward in a in a different direction where this wasn't just everything in her world and then i wanted to just take a a little bit of time to talk about uh mm -hmm craft specifically um and throughout our chat so far you've talked or you've mentioned you know like we're talking about these stories from these oral histories but then how something works um it either you have to insert it or it works to create a a plot point for mm -hmm. a fictional story um mm -hmm. which the whole that whole process i think is so interesting so I wanted to ask you what um, has drawn you to historical fiction 
specifically um, mm -hmm. since you you lean towards historical fiction um, and what has always fascinated you about that. Um, and then, so a little bit of a like two, three part question. So what draws you to okay. historical fiction? <laughs> <laughs> if there's any um, like a uh, time period or specific um, uh, types of situations that you are very fascinated by or drawn to. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it is only a two-part question. It's that okay. so it initially drew you to it. And if you have a, um, if you have like a specific either time period or certain kind of story that has always fascinated you. Sure. Um, so, you know, historical fiction, I, I didn't intend to writing, but my first novel, Outlook the May Alcott, uh, an original contemporary protagonist and who was connected to Louisa through these letters and that she had discovered. And then, you know, I had these flashback scenes that were written in, in from Louisa's point of time. But for whatever reason, I just really loved that. I really loved imagining, you know, and that book is about a gap or it's set during a gap um, in Louisa's journals where we don't really know what she was doing from like July to November of 1855. We know what, what she was doing before and what she's doing after, but something happened during that summer because by November, her life was on a very path than it had. Been. And so I just thought, well, that's a perfect, you know, place for mm -hmm. fiction to, to try to imagine and fill in the story. Um, and so the through revisions of that novel, I ended up getting rid of all the contemporary stuff and expanding the portions that were in Louisa's time um, and really loved that. And, and I so I think, and that sent me then on the path of doing subsequent historical novels. And I guess the reason I like it is because I like that, you know, you're starting sort of with a world that already exists, but there are always big gaps in our understanding of why people were doing what they were doing, what motivated them, what, you know, what details aren't on the page that could help us understand. And then of course, with historical fiction, it's really always colored by our own time, the time of the person who's writing it and the time of the people who are reading it, because we see those past eras through the lens of our own understanding of you know, women's roles and, um, you know, how we think about work and how we think about family in our contemporary world, colors, you know, how we view the conflicts and what's at stake and what, what even is the right moral or ethical choice um, for the characters to make in the situations that they're in. So I find mm -hmm. that dynamic interesting too, because it's really, you know, we're reading about the past, but the past is kind of reading us um, in the <laughs> present in a way. Um, okay, see, I already forgot the second. Thank God this one only has two and not three. <laughs> what was the second part again? So the oh, second, any eras that I'm drawn yeah, to. So specific, I would say, um, yeah, eras are even like, um, just like relationships in general. Cause like you said, if there's, um, there are so many common types of relationships, um, mm -hmm. that we find like repeated throughout history or in all kinds of different times and places. Um, so if either any types of relationships or archetypes are interesting to you or any specific time periods. 
I mean, all my books have been about women in some way. And I think, you know, I'm definitely drawn, as I said, to sort of these gaps in the record or like a little footnote um, will really, you know, capture my imagination and make me wonder, you know, why is the footnote the footnote and not the, mm-hmm. the big main event, you know, and what would it mean if you flipped that on its head and, and took that footnote and, and put that character at the center of a story. Um, That was true for In Need of a Good Wife, which is about brokers, marriage brokers who um, matched mail order brides um, from the East Coast with homesteaders, um, men almost exclusively, who got land through the Homestead Act after the Civil War. And so there were these towns in the West where there were no women, and there were these towns and cities in the East where there were very few men because so many men had died. Uh, in the Civil War. And so, you know, most of the marriage brokers were men, but somewhere along the way, I came across the idea, you know, that there may have been a woman that ran a business doing this. And I was like, well, that is a novel. I mean, just how, how did that happen? (laughs) Who was she? And so those, the characters in that book are totally fictional, but it just came from the seed of, you know, thinking that that could be such an interesting thing to explore. Um, my novel about Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok is obviously about two historical figures that are very well known, especially Eleanor Roosevelt. We know where she was just about every day of her life. We have records of all of that. Um, but, you know, much more is known now. But when I started that novel about seven years ago or whenever it was, you couldn't really find anything about Lorena Hickok. And I just thought, how interesting, you know, we know all about FDR's mistresses and the you know the relationships that he had outside of that marriage what this was a very important relationship to Eleanor how come we don't know anything Mm -hmm. about this woman and how come we don't know what was said behind closed doors and so that's the role of fiction I think is you know that I can um, imagine based on you know as much research as I can do to try to put myself in their shoes and, and think about what they would have done and then of course you do have to take liberties um, and I fully admit to doing that obviously it is fiction <laughs> um, sometimes people will say to me you know how could you put words in their mouth and it's like well this is fiction but there's something that fiction can do that you know you could have the most detailed historical uh, record nonfiction exhaustive biography but they're never going to be able to source, you know, what was said in the mm-hmm. room between two people with the door closed um, or what happened, you know, inside someone's head, inside someone's heart. And that's what fiction can do is to help us try to imagine, and we might be wrong, but imagine what, what those pieces of people's lives were like. And I really enjoy doing that. What are, we can, we can end on this, which will be a fun one. Do you have a list or a little like a note somewhere of footnotes that you've come across or people (laughs) or ideas that you've like heard just a tidbit of or someone's told a story that you think like I want to find out more about this I used to have a note like this where I would be reading a book or something and Mm -hmm. like something would be mentioned whether it was fiction or nonfiction, and I would say like look into this thing because it sounds interesting and there's just like you said it's a footnote or it's a it's a line in like the last chapter of a book and I'm like wait I need to know more about that and so I'm sure as someone who is intrigued by those things you may have some that are just sitting there waiting to grow into something 
I do. Yeah. And of course, like I know I'm not able to, you know, call them to mind exactly at the moment, but yeah, I for sure have folders and, and, and little post-it notes of things that I've written down. And I have a couple um, text chains with some other writers and we will just send each other, you know, a link to a news story we see or an article we see and just say novel. That's a novel, you know, there, that, there's a novel in there because it'll be, you know, a story of um, just an unusual person, you know, an unusual family in a situation in, in a small town where they were completely different and you don't understand why, how did they end up here? You know, how did they end up in this strange business that they were in or whatever it might be? Um just oddball characters that just are begging for, you know, more explanation and more, um, a second look um, and to kind of give them life. I think, you know, one of the things about American history anyway, and I'm sure this is true in other places too, um, we know the stories of the powerful people. We know the stories mostly of men, of white men. Um, and, and some of those are great stories, but for every one of those you know, characters who's really gotten a lot of spotlight, there are many you know, minor figures in their own lives. And then also many other you know, who each of them deserves their own um, you know, look and, and each of them deserves to be the star of their own story. Um, but then there's just many other stories that because of how we have recorded our history and, and what we have cared about and honored and what we have ignored, um, many other stories that we will never know. And I just find that to be completely fascinating and I will never stop you know, being driven by that because um, you know, and fads come and go in publishing with, with fiction, there, there will be, everybody's interested in, you know, a certain thing, recovering history of a certain theme or whatever types of historical figures, but we could do that for, you know, hundreds of years and we would still never excavate all of these interesting people and situations that, uh, that we don't even know about. So there's a lot to, to, to work on there. That is absolutely true. And I, although I am not a writer, I just want to start with every text I start sending people now, like any news article, right? I just want to send it a novel. Someone's, someone's going to write the novel. <laughs> here, here you go. Here's your next, I mean, we laugh because it's like one of these days, one of them's actually going to, you know, work out. Yeah. Well, and like you said, there is no, there is no drought of that. There's going, there is, there are so many stories to be written and especially to to excavate those parts of history that we don't get to see often and I'm so excited mm -hmm. that we have the myth of surrender on our shelves at Skylight now so everyone can Thank come you. and grab their copy um, if you're shopping online you can grab a copy at skylightbooks.com and again for all of our listeners my guest today was Kelly O'Connor McNeese author of Myth of Surrender, which you can buy at Skylight Books. Thank you so much for joining me, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.